Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 15th, 2020. I am John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Happy to tell you that we have just closed our October issue. Yesterday, we talked about the lead article in that issue. You will be re-educated by Christine Rosen, um, which is available for your perusal. If you did not do so yesterday, you should do so today and tomorrow and for the rest of the week and for the rest of the month at commentarymagazine.com, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. There are a lot of great things in this issue. Joseph Epstein on fame, Andy Ferguson on stupidity, uh, a fantastic article about the con man head of the American Communist Party, Gus Hall, and how he st- how he basically uh, defrauded the Soviet government out of millions of dollars uh, to use for, like, to buy a horse farm and stuff like that. Um Really, a, a lot of really uh, great stuff uh, at CommentaryMagazine.com, where we give you free, free reads, ask you to subscribe. Uh, another very important article by Josh Moravchik uh, is about uh, how Israel keeps saving the world, and we will get to that as our central topic of the show, uh, we being executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, uh, Josh Moravchik's piece, Israel Keeps Saving the World, focuses on Iran and uh, and Israel's history of uh, preventing nuclear prolifer- proliferation in the Middle East, starting, of course, with the Osirak reactor um, destruction in 1981, uh, moving on to the destruction of the burgeoning Syrian reactor in 2007, and then this uh, amazingly mysterious series of explosions this summer that seem to uh, be designed to uh, degrade and retard the uh, onrushing Iran uh, nuclear program uh, at uh, uh, Natanz and uh, Fardo in, in in Iran this this summer. Um, but uh, another article that we have in this package by Hussein Abu Bakr deals with the uh, the change in the reality of the Middle East that is represented by today's remarkable event uh, at the White House where President Trump will welcome Prime Minister Netanyahu and the heads of uh, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates to sign this normalization deal. Three countries, uh, Israel's first peace treaty with, a, uh, with an Arab nation since uh, Jordan 27 years ago, and um, uh, and this uh, rush apparently to uh, among the Sunni Arab states uh, in the Gulf and elsewhere to uh, acknowledge reality, say Israel is here to stay, and recognize that Israel is actually a and maybe not an ally, but somebody with whom they have a commonality of interests when it comes to dealing with the irredentist millenarian regime in Tehran, uh, which is. Uh, Israel's greatest enemy, but is also a great enemy to the Sunni Arab countries because it wishes to establish its form of Islam over the Sunni form of Islam. Uh, it's a it's a it's an extraordinary day. It is the signature diplomatic achievement, I would say, in memory. Uh, certainly goes far beyond anything that the Obama administration ever uh, produced. Uh, in terms of finding some way to uh, 
rejigger and rewire some of the uh, the motherboard of uh, of the world's geopolitics. Uh, Abe, uh, as somebody who worked very closely on these these articles, what do you what do you make of today's event? Um, it is like the most heartening news of the year, without question. Um, perhaps the only genuinely uh, good news of the year, and um, it is a case that exemplifies this idea of um, the consensus of something being um, not just wrong, but um, diametrically opposed to what uh, reality was. When Donald Trump decided to move the U.S. Embassy to in Israel to uh, Jerusalem, the ex- expert opinion had it that the so-called Arab street would explode and this would engender um, resentment and hatred across the Arab world. Um, if this is Arab hatred of, of uh, you know, of, of Israel and the United States, bring it on. We, we need much more of this kind of hatred. You know, yeah, I so think that's a, a go ahead, spread within, without the context of uh, local geopolitics, in particular, the uh, ongoing conflict between the, the Sunni states and Iran. It wasn't, I think it was 2017 that there was a full-fledged insurrectionary moment in Bahrain. Bahrain is uh, sort of Iran's uh, Taiwan. It's it's not perceived to be in Tehran to be a legitimate independent entity. And um, there was uh, a lot of protests there and the belief that they were being fueled by Iran in 2017. And uh, Bahraini security intercepted explosives and weapon shipments from Tehran moving into Bahrain. So it wasn't entirely not exogenous. You know, there was some indigenous elements to it, but it was part of this campaign that was unleashed inadvertently, perhaps, but with the tacit acceptance of the Obama administration over the course of the uh, negotiations over the JCPOA. Um, The same with the UAE deal. All of this is an outgrowth of Barack Obama's effort to reshape geopolitics in the region, which is spectacularly ironic, considering that is the, the democratic the chief democratic attack on George W. Bush's foreign policy, that he was negligent in his effort to reshape geopolitics without any understanding of the domestic, uh, local tribal entities and affiliations and the history of the region. And it was hubristic to think you could reshape this region after centuries of conflict. And they proceeded to do just that. And the effect has been inadvertently um, the spectacular failure of their policy, but a uh, unintended consequence, which is um, this flowering of peace between Israel and these Sunni states. What's interesting about this, of course, is that the uh, the idea that the embassy should have been moved to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv was a bipartisan policy, uh, a vote of the Congress in 1996, signed into law by Bill Clinton, and then suspended year after year after year after year, uh, on on emergency grounds that uh, things had not were not safe enough for it to happen, uh, so much so that after twenty years of this, uh, it had become a kind of um, I don't know, like a, a, the the status quo ante was you could never do it, you could never do it, and the only reason to do it was some kind of ideological sop to. Uh, to 
Zionist rich Jews, evangelicals who, you know, wanted this to happen. Um, I think that there's a fascinating lesson here, which is that uh, this move, which, you know, was symbolic and I think good, followed U.S. law and uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Uh, It's where the seat of government is and where the Knesset meets and where the prime minister lives and all of that. But um, it, it may have been a signature moment here because it represented a statement about the United States that said, we acknowledge and the world now needs to acknowledge that Israel is here to stay permanently forever. And that by making that, crossing that final Rubicon that says that Jerusalem status is not really tentative, Jerusalem is not going to be out of, of, of Jewish hands or Israeli hands, that um, the permanence of Israel may have been become fixed in the minds of the Sunni Arab leaders who were still, had already made their peace with Israel in the sense that they really didn't, weren't going to spend much effort to try to destroy it anymore. But the thing of saying, okay, it's been 70 years, the United States is moving its embassy there, the Palestinians are hopeless, We've wasted billions of dollars on them. They can get nothing done. They haven't impeded or retarded uh, Israel in any way. Uh, Israel is flourishing and growing and economically strong. Uh, the Palestinians are weak and divided and foolish and victims. Um, and half of them are, are cat's paws of the Iranians anyway. So maybe things really have changed and we should we should accept this new reality. So this symbolic thing, which literally involved, you know, moving from one building to another, and there isn't even a, a real embassy in, in Jerusalem yet that, you know, is nice and big and comfortable and fancy and, or ambassador's residence or anything like that, um, may have been startlingly important geopolitically. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting thing because that's not not what even any of us who would have said, ah, there's no Arabs. The Arabs, uh, people, I think we did say this at the time. Yeah, we'll see what the Arab street does. Uh, you know, we're sick and tired of hearing about the Arab street always reacting violently to to Israel's bad behavior. And of course, there were r- Palestinian riots and Palestinian rockets and things like that, particularly from Gaza. But um, but even there, the idea that maybe this this was an important way station on the way to a changed Middle East. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure it occurred to anybody, uh, including Trump or David Friedman, the ambassador, or uh, Jason Greenblatt, who uh, helped negotiate it, or or Trump himself, or Bibi, for that matter. I, I think that is um, totally true and, and um, an excellent point, because um, up until then, uh, I think what we all expected was this this status quo to continue. The status quo in this regard being that um, countries like uh, the, those of the, the, the UAE and um, Saudi Arabia would keep working quite closely with Israel, um, sort of in the shadows um, against Iran. And that was itself, that was as encouraging as we thought things would be, and, and that was... A sort of good enough um, change. We thought that was the sea change. That you know, every once in a while there'd be these statements leaked 
um, by Arab leaders saying that we don't really, we have no need to look on Israel as the enemy anymore. Um, and I think the, but the, but the overt change uh, um, in, in, and the, the very visible symbol of, of um, the, the, the permanence of um, uh, Jewish Jerusalem in that sense, I think really did then bring that out, out of the shadows and, and into the daylight. And it was obvious at the time, because when this occurred in May of 2018, there was an eruption of violence in the Palestinian territory, one Palestinian territory in Gaza, where Hamas urged uh, a lot of protest and violence, and they surged the border, and they threw bodies at IDF, and threw grenades and Molotov cocktails, and the images were all over Western television. But what you didn't hear was any statement of support for this activity from Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, half a dozen other states in the region, and the absolute silence of the response from the West Bank, which has an entirely distinct political culture, economy, foreign policy. It is a distinct state from Gaza, um, where there was no eruption, no similar activity uh, in response to this, this, uh, this move by the United States. And that should have been the indication here that the, the terms of, uh, of engagement here are very different than they were 10 years ago. Well, that, that's actually, I think that tonal shift is really something that hasn't been um, examined thoroughly enough, but you're absolutely right. Because even if you look at how the Palestinian cause is now being treated in, even in, in aspects of mainstream media, which is usually very sympathetic, there's now more reporting of this idea of, you know, honestly, geopolitically, you know, having your uh, permanent status be one of either victim or martyr is is does not long term do much for your actual people and their concerns. And I think that there's now more criticism of that when you know the Palestinian response to these accords um, has been the same old, same old. There's been a little pushback on that, like really, like kind of questioning that. And I think that actually in terms of the domestic uh, political machinations around this sort of thing is really interesting in the same way that there's a beautiful irony in the fact that, you know, Obama wins the Nobel Peace Prize before he's done anything. And now Trump is being nominated for basically cleaning up the mess that Obama caused. It's, I don't know. I, well, that's I, I an interesting like ending of that. Right. <laughs> but so you have a two-step here. It's an interesting two-step, which is that probably this breakthrough would not have been possible without the worst foreign policy. I know but every people say that, hmm. that going into Iraq was the worst foreign policy move of, you know, all time. But uh uh, the worst chosen foreign policy, you know, negotiated move of the of I don't know the last thirty years was the Iran deal, um, uh, in the sense that you know it, it was all based on a bizarre theory that uh, uh, by releasing hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to Iran and uh, norm and doing whatever you could to start a process of normalizing relations with Iran. And essentially acknowledging that it could have a nuclear weapon after a, a, a gap in time, um, that the uh, countries that Iran uh, was is basically at at uh, religious war with um, turned around, looked around, and said, um, "If there's the the uh, entropic effect of this deal is going to be that Iran is going to be a nuclear power and is going to have the whip hand." And eventually is going to take Mecca, which is what you know Iran wants, and the ultimate is to become the guardian of Mecca. And and so they 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 had no choice but to change direction. Because well, they had the, already they had already taken Baghdad. 
by, by right. Barack Obama's tacit acceptance right. needing some sort of a force right. that would that would supplement the uh, Iraqi Defense Forces, which in 2014 we were shown by ISIS to be hapless and incapable of, of defending the country, that they needed some other external force that would m- maintain security in the north. They gave it over to them. That was the catalyst. And can I just briefly digress? Because being a neocon... Uh, it's necessary to defend the Iraqi uh, uh, conflict. We secured every strategic objective we set out to secure. Saddam Hussein's regime is gone. The threat that it represented is neutralized. The people who say it's the worst war in the world are now calling the good war, the war in Afghanistan, the one we lost. We're negotiating with the Taliban to reinstall them in power right now. That's a lost objective. We didn't make that one work. We made Iraq work. And to the extent that it was lost at all, it was lost as a result of American acquiescence to Iran. We have since begun rolling back Iranian influence in Iraq over the last four years. And to a substantial success, actually, the political leadership in Iraq is much different than it was in, in 2017 now and much more hostile to, uh, to Iran. And those strategic objectives continue to mount. We continue to secure victories in Iraq. So for all you people who are beholden to this 2009 vision of what the Iraq war was, go go read, go read up on events of the last decade. You're you know, behind. that was a great rant and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And I want to also, uh, something occurred to me as you were talking that um, uh, in years to come, uh, you know, when, as always happens, there is a uh, re-examination of presidencies and all of this. And obviously you look at uh, Trump and you think, well, that'll never really happen, right? There'll never really be a re-examination because the... The sort of the elite conspiracy of opinion against him is so overwhelming. But of course, people also want to be interesting and say interesting things and do that. And um, I, I I think about this in relation to some reexamination of Trump. Let's say, let's assume Biden wins in November. That um, some point in the late eighties, early nineties, it began to occur to people who had been horrible antagonists of the, you know, t- t- really thought that the Jimmy Carter presidency was the worst presidency ever and a nightmare and was leading us down the path to destruction and all of this, that it was just terrible in every way and horrible and monstrous. And then, you know, people then looking and taking a look here and there saw interesting things that were surprising uh, against their own uh, ideological presuppositions that, um, the real deregulatory frame of the 1980s, part of the way that uh, Ronald Reagan helped uh, liberate the economy from the shackles of New Deal government, um, actually started in the Carter administration. Uh, the deregulation of the airlines, the deregulation of, uh, or, the, or the, the change in the way that the inter... Uh, boring stuff. Telecom and the, the boring stuff like... Um, changing the status of the intercoastal waterway system, uh, which I know sounds like the most boring thing you've ever heard, but um, uh, there, there was a very irrational dating back to the Erie canal days way that the intercoastal waterway system was, 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 was handled. Um, and it was done in a very rational orderly uh, way that, that gave people a sense of how you could properly relate government and industry and stuff like that. And in foreign policy terms, you could see this with Trump. You could really see when wiser heads prevail and things calm down and all of that, that in that when it comes to the Middle East, 
he will be seen as a even by you know uh, not by the the the, the Ben Rhodes uh, the pernicious Ben Rhodes idiots, but others um, that uh, you will see that he was a create a change a force for positive and creative change, um, and maybe uh, that was you know, inadvertent, or it certainly wasn't sort of planned. It wasn't like a game of 3D chess, but uh, the opportunities were created and the Trump administration took advantage of them. And one of the ways it took advantage of them was by making it totally clear to the Sunni Arab countries and to the world that the United States was tilting unambiguously toward Israel. And not only was it tilting that way, because generally speaking, even when you have a hostile president like like Obama, nonetheless, American policy will tend to be more friendly to Israel than not. In you know, it follows public opinion. Sixty percent of Americans have a favorable impression of Israel, and fifteen percent of the Palestinians. Um, but that, but that it was Trump said, "I am Israel's friend. Israel is our friend. We do we're doing for them things, and that's how it's going to work." And even there, this violation of the norm may have been the spark to people saying, yeah, well, we sort of thought that all along. Now it's now it's open and, you know, we don't have to play with these niceties. Trump has laid the American cards on the table. And so we got to deal with this as the new reality. And that's where, I mean, although, you know, I... I personally hate to admit it because when, when this is applied in other aspects of, of uh, policymaking by the president it drives me insane. But the, but the kind of combativeness and the suspicion of the way things have always been done, that has brought uh, a positive response here, right? I mean, the kind of the whole thinking outside the foreign policy box is what worked in this situation. Saying the quiet thing out loud is what worked in this situation. And when that's done in other contexts, it's a disaster, particularly domestically. But in this case, that's where there is a positive effect to some of the style of his presidency and some of the rhetoric of it. Okay, well, I'm sympathetic to that, but I do think it gives the president far too much credit. The notion that he invented (laughs) invented this conception of a changing geopolitical uh, uh, equilibrium in the Middle East is nonsense. The intellectual infrastructure was there for a decade preceding his presidency. He surrounded himself with the people who understood this and wisely deferred to them. Um, to that extent, he deserves credit for that. But the bull in the China Shop Act doesn't doesn't wash with me. This is not something that he came up with. I, I have to disagree, um, in the sense that he, I think he he should get more credit because it's it's not that he had some grand strategic vision here. What he has and what he, what he what he's had truly uniquely, I think, um, um, uh, among occupants of the White House, is this sense of. Well, well, let's just acknowledge reality here. I mean, this the, it, it, it is what it is. What, what, why are we playing a silly game? And it's th- that sense. Um, that is that is a pretty bold thing, actually. For I, someone, I, yeah. don't dis- I don't disagree. I came up when I got my grad degree in IR. I was in that field, at least sort of on the, the fringes of the professional field of diplomacy, and it is sclerotic and beholden to uh, long uh, defunct concepts of how the diplomatic process should work. And I was sort of supportive of this uh, 
strangle the State Department through attrition process that he had early on in this uh, administration, which forced a lot of professional diplomats out. And everybody was terrified of that. But th this is an institution that needed a shakeup and needed some external pressure on it. I agree to that extent. However, he didn't, he didn't have a strategic vision here, and it wasn't his idea no. to do this. No, I, I agree. And I, I'm, I'm sure Abe doesn't think he had a strategic where he's like, you know, if I do this, then X, Y, and Z will happen, and then there'll be, you know, right, absolutely. peace no. treaties right. across the Middle East. It is that when you, when you alter the terms of the discussion, the terms of the discussion, that, that has that has secondary tertiary consequences or, or changes up makes opportunities possible. And then you also then have to take advantage of the opportunities. Um, and, you know, not to, not to draw too, too uh, serious an analogy here, but um, you know, when Ronald Reagan came in and said he did not like the way arms control treaties were, had been negotiated thus far with the Soviet union. And he went to, uh, and he did two major things, right? One of which is he went to Gorbachev and said, "Look, let's let's stop let's stop being foolish here. We'll just get rid of all nuclear weapons." Isn't that what the whole point here is? Like, what? Why? Let's we'll just get rid of all of them. And basically, it was Gorbachev who had to say no. You know, it was not. It was you know, it was like fine. So you know, you want to negotiate arms control? Let's negotiate arms control. We'll just get rid of all nuclear weapons. I don't like them. They're bad. I'll get rid of mine, you get rid of yours, right? And then the other thing he did was build Star Wars. And why was that? And that was considered, oh, so incredibly, oh my God, that was so destabilizing. What was the theory behind Star Wars? It was, let us make nuclear weapons, let us do what we can to make nuclear weapons unusable or, or unnecessary or unreliable. The whole point is that it was a different framework about the way in which um, the cons uh, uh, once creative policy, by the way, which was containment, was a creative policy, was a, was, a, was a way of dealing with the realities of the time that then hardens into something sclerotic. Because you need to shift and change. And if, if, um, if the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s starts becoming an aggressive, forward-leaning imperialist state that starts threatening the world order... You can't then deal with it solely in terms of coming up with nonsense arms control deals that 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 enshrine its numerical superiority in nuclear weapons. Like you need to upset the apple cart some. Okay, I really do hope we're getting into a theoretical discussion about deterrence because that's my wheelhouse, and also it would lead us into this notion that. Uh, the the strike on Soleimani, which was the other good thing that happened in 2020. Soleimani being the head of the Iranian Revolutionary <laughs> Guard Corps, the, the right. leading uh, military terrorism, uh, I don't know, the, the leading official in Iran who's basic, who basically integrated terrorism with its military posture. Right. Okay, go Very ahead. important figure. Um, so yeah, neutralized him in January and... There was a, a theatrical retaliatory response from Iranian territory into uh, Iraqi territory, but what looks like the State Department's explicit contention here, um, the Secretary of State said we, uh, something along the lines of we, d deterrence has broken down. And if you really believe that, 
then you have to act fast. That deterrence had broken down in 2019 2019. because of the Iranians were testing our resolve in the Gulf. Testing our resolve. They were striking. uh, That's what I mean. They were executing uh, really highly coordinated drone strikes on the world's largest petroleum facilities, staging uh, piracy on the, in the Strait of Hormuz or internationally flagged vessels. It was the sort of stuff that we would in a world before uh, fracking, when most of the world's oil came out of the Middle East, would be cause a spell. You'd have to have an international response yeah. in order to maintain the world's energy market, And would have led to an oil panic, by the way. The other thing I'm, was that we would, we would have been in another, like, uh, you know, ga- oil would have gone up to $8 a gallon, um, gas would have gone, you know, and we would have had a an, an, uh, a world, a global panic on oil. So the people who are, you know, pro Iran deal folks or what have you saying that this is also destabilizing and Iran's going to retaliate again. And Mm -hmm. this is only going to make it worse. And, you know, we're nine months later now and it's eh, deterrence has pretty much been restored. But then we got this report yesterday, two days ago, I think actually leaked reports in Politico suggesting that Iran is thinking of retaliating against the United States for the Soleimani strike by targeting the, a uh, handbag manufacturer who became Donald Trump's uh, 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 ambassador to South Africa. That's a retaliatory response. And the predictable hand wringing we've seen is, oh, look, this here it comes. This is the response that Donald Trump invited with his reckless foreign policy and attacks on Iran. And that we get what we deserve here. So to Voce drink. Um, that's sort of, that's the implicit, implicit implication here is that, you know, we, we really deserve this we should have some ambassadors get killed. And that is wish fulfillment. It's, it's a wish fathering the thought. First of all, it's not, it's not a failure of deterrence because we're not talking about any sort of deterrent effect as a result of this operation. If it were to occur, that would be an escalatory response. It would prompt the exact opposite of deterrence. Yeah. And also deterrence doesn't maintain itself. Deterrence well, isn't something as, as the Cold War analogy demonstrates deterrence isn't something that just happens and then it exists in perpetuity it is a garden that you have to maintain forever or else it this is such a weird story too right it's almost like iran opened its burn book and was like okay well this one this one we're gonna i mean it's 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 such a strangely weak kind of floated uh thing that's being posited here i mean i we you know, I, I'm not questioning the the validity of the story, but it's a it's an odd moment to float an odd story. It seems to me. Yeah, um, but, it, but it leads me to believe that it, it, it's in fact just bluster. Well, right. I mean, that's yeah. there's there's two aspects of that. There's the one who is like, this is really raw intelligence. Somebody just swept up all the post-it notes from the last Iranian Revolutionary Guard retreat and just you know got whatever they could and threw it up against the wall. Or the Trita Parsis of the world who's like, okay, in October, we're going to war with Iran because Trump needs to win this election. Those are the two yeah. insane responses. Yeah. Okay, can I, so it's interesting because you said like, oh, we should, you know, there was a kind of weird, we'll deserve this if our ambassadors get killed, because look how reckless we are. Um, This is a total out of left field analogy that I want to make, but um, the horrible wildfires uh, in, in, in the Pacific, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, right, In, in California, up to Oregon, and these unbelievably disturbing pictures of the orange sky for days and the fact that no one's seen the sun in Southern California for, you know, uh, two weeks and the air quality and all of this. Right. And, and we have these, 
two or three incidents, apparently, that provoke provoking incidents, right? This gender reveal party where somebody lit off some pyrotechnic device that started uh, the forest fire in California that then just simply could not could not be stopped. And then an arson event in Oregon uh, that apparently then brought it from the north down um, and all of this. And, and this whole question of whether or not one of the reasons that this conflagration has happened uh, to this uh, unbelievable extent is the mismanagement of the uh, forest lands, uh, largely under federal control, by the way. So uh, Trump, Trump administration does not get a pass. Like this is the interior department's responsibility. If, if basically there's 10 billion pounds of tinder, you know, lying on the, lying on the forest floor uh, and no one is, is sweeping it up. That was the federal government's responsibility to sweep it up. But um, what happens when this happens? What happens is, ah, it's climate. Don't look at me. I'm governor Gavin Newsom. Don't look at me. This is climate change and you better do something about climate change because it's all climate change, and you bet it's all cli- climate change. Climate change. Look, hey squirrel, I didn't do it. This is not a. This is not a. Uh, this is not a man-made event, which apparently it, it is a man-made event. These were there was a forest fire that was started by, <laughs> you know, a single event. Uh, but it's all climate change. Like there's never been a forest fire before, or con- or con- conflagration of a forest fire before. Because the photographs are so bad. And what I mean by when I say that there is some connection here is there is a we deserve this quality to it. This is happening because we we have mismanaged the earth and we are destroying the earth. And Donald Trump doesn't like, you know, doesn't believe in climate change. And and therefore, you know, we are reaping the whirlwind and we deserve it. We deserve it and everyone is going to die and we deserve it. And that that's that's all there is to it. And it is a very interesting thing. It's got this odd quality of grasping at the thing that cannot be controlled, you know, certainly not immediately, which is climate change, uh, in the sense that, you know, you can't like flick a switch and stop climate change in 2020 um, by saying, don't look at me. I didn't fail. And, you know, what's more, if you were smart, politically smart, and you really wanted to blame Donald Trump, you would do what I just did, which is say, 67% of the forest land in the Pacific Northwest and in California is owned and controlled by the federal government. And if there has been negligence and bad management, it is at the federal level and they are they are to blame. And that's Donald Trump. And that's the, you know, that's the executive branch. That's my analogy. Anybody want to? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's politically <laughs> viable, I suppose, but it's, <clears throat> I mean, it's not a hundred percent true. Yeah, there's, uh, federal land management is is a thing here, but it's not as though this is a hundred percent federal. Um, there's the, the state has state local tribal interests ha- are responsible for forest oh, yeah. land management. Yeah, but I'm just for, and, forget who gets twenty eight. There was a twenty eighteen California Legislative Analyst Office study that talked about overcrowded forests yeah. and the need for limiting timber harvest and con- you know containing amount of trees. It's a, they knew the problem here right. exists, and this is state right. level, right. so you can point around it. But yeah. but California deserves a whole lot of blame. Yeah. There's also, I mean, there's a sort of vaguely quasi-religious aspect of the, the yeah. sacrifices that one must make to climate change. Like, for example, California is now limiting the amount of power you can consume. There are rolling blackouts, which yeah. is public policy. Yeah. Um, as though power generation, fossil fuel gener- uh, generated power generation in California is responsible for climate change. When 
no one in their right mind would actually say that. Even people who are really true believers in the climate crisis, would, no one would, would ever believe that if we can turn off our lights for an hour in California, that we'll be saved. It's a global problem, right? Per their own suggestions. So, so Noah, this is, we're talking- it's, this weird, it's like this offering right. to the climate change gods. Right. Or the political climate change gods. Anyway, Noah, we're talking about trees. We're talking about trees, out of control trees, and but there are people who love a good tree and you have something to tell us about how to get trees the best possible way. Sure. Well, when is the perfect time to plant trees and shrubs? Big box store experts will tell you any time, or um, that's a great question. But the best time to plant a tree is actually fall, which means now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. Skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through the lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color to your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth come spring. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard, fastgrowingtrees.com. Fall is planting season. Don't let anybody tell you different. Join the over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus, a 30-day alive and thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now, through November 15th, Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 10% off. That's 10% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Great. So um, here's an interesting thing going on. Uh, uh, the uh, liberal uh, uh, uneasiness with uh, polling that we talked about yesterday and we've been talking about for a couple of days, uh, there's a subsection of it that is driving people bananas uh, uh, among liberals, which is two or three different polls in Florida show, uh, and, and uh, at least one uh, nationwide poll, show uh, Donald Trump uh, outperforming among uh, Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx voters, uh, compared to w- where he was in 2016, uh, at least one poll has him in Florida close to 40 percent, um, or, or t- tied with Biden uh, among the in the Hispanic vote in Florida, and there is a kind of general panic sense that Biden is underperforming uh, with this uh, critical uh, Democratic constituency, and that this could have really parlous uh, consequences. Um, uh, I, I, I enjoy uh, liberal panic as much as the next guy. Uh, I do think that um, there are times when these stories come out, uh, um, you know, and are sort of promoted among the constituents that they're about because um, there's a resource battle going on uh, in, in democratic circles and, uh, people who are professional uh, Hispanics and professional Latinos want money, uh, want their constituencies to be served and want attention and want things talked about in the campaign that are of importance to them and would like 
ad buys on their radio stations and, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff done. And so they have a, they actually have a vested interest in kind of a, uh, waving a, a red flag um, to see if they can get the attention of, of, of the campaign. So I'm, I'm always a little wary. And, and then of course, Trump also has this, um, he wants to be able to say that he's doing better among all these group, you know, African-Americans and Hispanics and all of this, because this is part of his vanity in general, that somehow he's the greatest president ever for, for, for black people or Hispanics love him. Yeah. He loves a taco bowl and, and, and they love him too. Um, so I don't know what you guys make of it. I'm a little leery, uh, to, to, to believe this, this notion that, um, uh, you know, he's going to outperform, you know, George W. Bush, for example. Well, maybe think about the question this way. What's Biden's message to Hispanic voters? Because the only thing I have heard the Biden campaign consistently talk about is kids in cages. That's a pretty small slice that that's actually a message that the progressive left enjoys hearing over and over again. But when you look at sort of the Hispanic community in this country and how diverse it is and some of its concerns, that doesn't necessarily speak to them. I mean, the most interesting polls are the ones about uh, Hispanic Americans' views of immigration, because that's all, it's really fascinating stuff. And it's, I think the Trump administration is hoping to exploit the kind of law-abiding Hispanic vote that doesn't actually want totally open borders, for example. Um, so I've actually, I, it's a genuine question. I do not know what Biden's message on Hispanic voters is because I haven't really heard one from him and they don't fit easily into the progressive left message that obviously Harris and Biden have committed to. Well, you saw Ben Nelson yesterday say something that's pretty interesting. And I, I have a very peripheral um, contact with this, this community insofar as um, my wife is part of it. But uh Ben Nelson, senator, former senator from Florida, said, you know, what's not gelling for for uh, Joe Biden like it should have isn't Cuban-American voters, isn't, you know, his, uh, 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 Mexican-American voters. It's Puerto Rican-American voters, Puerto Ricans in, in, the, in Florida and the Northeast in particular. Um, they're just not responding in the way they did in the Obama years. And that's a, that's a red flag. And I haven't the slightest idea what to attribute that to. Right. Um, but... You know, if I would take a stab, there's the the wokeism that has overtaken the Democratic Party is a real turnoff to everybody I speak with uh, who is Puerto Rican, for example. Um, most of whom around me are this is anecdotal, but most of whom around me are more conservative. So it's probably not a universal thing. But you know, just to take one aspect of this, this zealous commitment to using the word Latinx, Latin, Latinx, whatever, marks you as someone who has no contact with the Hispanic community. It is designed to suggest you are inclusive and understanding of this community and bathed in it. And it, it communicates the precise opposite, that you have no contact with these people. Except for AOC. <laughs> well, right. so, so, Christine's your 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 observation is well taken because of course, how can there be a message for the for the Hispanic community? Uh, Cubans right. uh, make up thirty uh, percent or something. Make up a, a, a very large uh, element of the vote in in Florida, but nowhere else. I mean, there are a bunch of Cubans in New York and in New Jersey, but so and they have a very specific interest that Trump has served. Right, that Trump has um, right. tightened. Uh, 
Obama's loosening of of right. of the of the restraints on Cuba, which and Biden is associated with. I mean, that, Biden's that, associated yeah. with that, right? Number one and number two, uh, despite propaganda for years that said, "Well, younger Cubans all are they want normalization. This is all older Cubans and all this." Well. I mean, if Trump is getting sixty to you know sixty five percent of the Cuban vote, then I, I'm if that if that's what what happens, and maybe that's 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 an overstatement, but uh, it would appear that uh, tightening rather than loosening is something that the Cuban vote is interested in. But um, their interests have no, nothing in common with uh, California, uh, you know, people of Mexican descent in California. Or uh, people of Dominican descent in New York, or uh, co- you know, co- Colombians in Venezuela, or Puerto Ricans. Like they're not; they all speak one language, and so they, and if you know, if they are in fact native Spanish speakers, um, and they watch two television channels that most of the rest of America don't watch, uh, you know. Um, but they are other Telmundo and Univision, but they are otherwise a disparate population that are is nonetheless reliably democratic. And why are they reliably democratic? It's the same question that you might ask about Indian Americans. Interesting thing: Indian Americans uh, from you know from South Asia, very entrepreneurial, very uh, very well to do. Uh, you know, came here, opened motels, did this, did that, the other thing. They're 70, 30 Democratic voters like Jews are. And so uh, Jews, of course. So w- what is it that make them all live? Why are they all liberals? It doesn't make sense. It makes sense because the Republican Party is the white party and they are not white. And that that is basically, as I see it, to the extent that people have an identity that does not feel fully white and fully white Christian, um, they will tend to gravitate to the Democratic Party because the Republican Party, which was growing in its emphasis on economic connections and various other things, has not, nonetheless retreated back into its own form of identity politics. Um, uh, so, well, so that would be I mean, my... that's changing too. I'm sorry. Go well, ahead, I no. just, isn't there this potentially this larger? quite large irony at work here, um, whereby, so the, the GOP is the white party, and uh, we're talking about um, uh, constituencies that, that, that aren't white, and Donald Trump has been, you know, held up um, by his enemies as this sort of beacon of white nationalism, and, uh, you know, this sort of the worst most overt white nationalist shift in, in, you know, American governance that we've ever seen. And might he not somehow have used that to get a shocking amount of support among minorities by, by just sort of rejecting that out of hand and not pandering to them? Well, look, I mean, things are the, the law and order stuff is, is changing. It's, and it's resonating particularly with, minority voters. You had this Monmouth University poll that came out yesterday that showed uh, almost two-thirds, roughly uh, almost two-thirds of Americans, 65% say that maintaining law and order is a major problem in this country right now. 8% say it's not a problem. So this is a resonant issue. Now, Republicans and independents who lean GOP are most likely to say that, but the people who disagree are non-white, are, are, are white non-Republicans. Non-Republicans who are black 60% 
or any other race, 66%, agree with that statement. Right. They agree with Republicans. The people who are saying this is fine this year are white Democrats. Right. Well, so one way in which you might say that Trump uh, has, uh, you know, a, a weird kind of secret weapon uh, among Hispanics uh, would be, I, I hate to put it this way because it's, you know, I mean, taken out of context, it could sound horrible, would be an overemphasis by the Democratic Party on Black voters. Um, I mean, you know, it's been three months of Black Lives Matter. And if you're, uh, you know, um, uh, Hispanic in the United States, maybe you're like, well, what about me? You know, why why aren't you talking about me? Um, You know, uh, I I don't know if that's real or, you know, if this is the way that people, it's all a zero-sum game, Uh, you know, uh, but... uh, this is a problem in, in, in ethnic constituency politics in general. I mean, Hispanics are a larger element, people that the Census Bureau calls Hispanic, make up a larger number of Americans than African Americans. Uh, African Americans make up about 12% of the population. Hispanics make up about 16% of the population. Now, they, they list as Hispanics a lot of people who don't really make sense as Hispanics, like people, New Mexicans who have been here for 300 years because their last names end in a Z. You know, I mean, there are people named Martinez who have been here, you know, almost as long as the Mayflower, uh, you know, uh, but, but nonetheless, um, it could be that they're, that the, the, the stress on, on, on black voters is having a weird blowback uh, to uh, against Biden. This notion that uh, all the constituent service uh, in the Democratic Party is now aimed at one group and one group especially. And if you are somebody whose uh, whose group seems uh, particularly interested in or dependent upon or, or, inter- or, or wanting government assistance for things, then you are worried that one group will get it and you won't. Well, you see this in the tug of war about the terms being used, I think, because it's not just Latinx, it's also BIPOC, you know, where however everyone's pronounced, the uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So you see, you'll sometimes see like Biden campaign surrogates and spokespeople using BIPOC. Um, and that's supposed to include Hispanics, but I'm, and I'm curious about whether there's been any polling or, or study of whether his, how many Hispanic people consider themselves people of color, which is a particular distinction that's often used in these political contexts, and how many of them would just say, well, I'm Hispanic. Um, because that, that distinction does matter to the people who uh, are identifying themselves in that way. And, you know, there is, the, in some odd way, this is the identity, I, you know, intersectionality uh, monster coming to roost for Democrats because they created a system in which everyone's supposed to identify by these, you know, immutable characteristics. And now when people are start start fighting about it, I mean, this is what you get. And in some weird way, although Abe's right that Trump is identified as the white supremacist, you know, president, it's not as if he goes around talking about how he's white. So right. whereas in the Democratic Party, that's really all you're hearing from a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you know, there's also this self-identity thing. Nate Cohen of the New York Times identified this in 2014 that uh, American Hispanics, millions of American Hispanics who identified as Hispanic, Latino or Spanish origin in 2000 identified as white in 2010. Right. Because, right. Well, they didn't change, but their self-perception did. Right. 
or 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 these are just these are literal demographic changes, which is to say that uh, voters, the ones who call themselves Hispanic, died. They were replaced by new people between the ages of eighteen and twenty-five, who are by this point second or third generation and do not have that affiliation or are or are products of a mixed marriage uh, and therefore uh, identify with the other side of the marriage. That's that's why these things can't be immutable. Exactly. It's the biggest problem with woke identity politics is that they perceive these traits to be immutable when they are very fluid and uh, very based in self-perception. And like me and my wife talk about this, you know, she's half Hispanic, I'm half Jewish. The notion that we were white or white adjacent is a recent phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of generations ago, we would not be considered white adjacent anything. Well, you know, this is my this is my joke. Uh, I, I've, I've mentioned this many times on the podcast, but if you if you told my grandfather... Uh, the you know uh, immigrant from uh, from uh, Galicia uh, who spoke with a Yiddish accent all his life and was a milkman that he was white like Rockefeller he would have thought you were an insane or that he was white like like uh, the Italian down the block or the Irish kid who was beating up on my father he would have thought you were crazy they had nothing in common with each other he was a Jew they were Irish this one was Italian there was no such thing as white. You know, that's the joke about white supremacy and how America is a country, a white supremacist country, is that is that uh, the, the founding of this country, there was no there was no idea of what everybody, you know, the Scots were at war with the Irish. The Hatfields were fighting the McCoys like, you know, this was not the great uh, ethnic divides of the 19th century, oddly enough, were not black and white. They were, you know, they were Catholic and Protestant. They were Irish and, you know, Irish and English. Well, that's the weird irony of the uh, presentist view of identity and race being projected backwards. And I sent you guys, and you know, I'm obviously this this gets under my skin um, uh, tremendously. But I sent you guys yesterday on our on our uh, little text chain that uh, you know a story. It's now being inserted into regular present day reporting. So there was a story in the New York Times by Peter Baker about the the controversy about the Eisenhower uh, Memorial that's going in the National Mall and is finally uh, reopened. And he just you know kind of casually puts in there, you know, well, you know, like so many leaders in our country's past, he was a white, you know, hetero patriarchal dude. I mean, just just the kind of weird language of identity politics. It was completely unnecessary. It's a signaling device now for present day progressives. And when they look at the past, they can they have to impose that signal on the past in a way that is completely ahistorical and and as John's story shows, utterly ridiculous. It just it it doesn't make sense. By the way, can I just that, that was a fascinating thing that Peter Baker did with that story on Eisenhower. So I just uh, I just went and looked up uh, the number. You know, he was a you know white uh, only for white people and all that, right? Okay. Um, so in 1950, you know, the census of 1950 found that the population of the United States was 150 million, and the non-Hispanic white population of the United States was 131 million, meaning. I believe that the white population of the United States in 1950 was 87, maybe 88%, something like that, 85, 86, 87%. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, he was, <laughs> he was, what does that even mean? Like, you know, you know, that's even now it's 72 or 73%, something like that. And so, um, this is the bizarre thing about counting by race is that if you want to create the conditions under which there will be a white supremacist movement, 
and there will be uh, there will be identity politics in which whites become a, a significant separate self-conscious identity coalition. Whites win. Like this is not a this is not a winning strategy. This is 2016 all over again, big time. I mean, if you start sorting people by race as aggressively as people are starting to do on college campus, you know, with these things where people are now starting to talk about having affinity groups that are white only because they need a safe space to talk amongst themselves and all this. 20 years from now, the white population of the United States will still be 69, 70%, and everybody else will make up 30%, and the whites will be dominating. And if they are self-consciously white and have the understanding that you need to cobble together a racial and a racialist identity in order to have a position in a country that has become totally balkanized, well, they get they get everything. That's a big majority. It is literally, um, uh, it is only in a pluralist uh, country that minority rights are respected to the extent that you don't then make sure that they never get to be president or anything. But we should make explicit the irony here of this in the context of the 2020 race is that Donald Trump is doing better with minority voters. Where he's not doing better is with white voters. Right. White voters are fleeing Donald Trump at a spectacular rate, particularly four-year degree holders. That's where the problem lies for this president. It's not his appeals to white people and white racial identity that's doing him in. It's the fact that people hate racial conflict. Americans hate racial conflict. Which is why that Monmouth poll, it's important to mention. So the Monmouth poll that says that law and order is a real problem in the United States does not necessarily redound to Trump's advantage. It's important to understand the conflicting nature of material like that, because you do have a, a non, you know, you do have a significant number of people in the country who will say that Trump is exacerbating these conditions and the disorder and decay in the country and that the law and order problem connects to him and not to Biden. I think it, it, yeah. it's marginally better for Trump or more than marginally better for Trump than it is for Biden, but it's not a hundred percent. It's not 80%. It's not 60%. But in but in a in a broader sense, so I feel like you know the 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 phrase politics is downstream from culture. What identity politics is doing right now is building a dam in that stream, and what that means is that the cultural message has been positive. If you look at rates of interracial marriage in this country, if you look at rates of, you know, and also if you project demographically 10, 20, 30 years into the future, there's a very positive message about race in this country. But identity politics folks don't want that message. What they want to do is build a dam that says, no, actually, we're going to divide. We're going to have, it's about power. Um, And I think in that sense, uh, whatever happens in this recent election um, won't change that much because that's a, that's a culture problem. Um, and I just feel like that, I mean, the interracial marriage rates to me are the most heartening story uh, on race that has ever been told. And it's been told by individuals making their decision about who to marry, who to love, who to raise families with. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of that gets undermined by by the message we're seeing today about identity politics. But I, I'd say the identity politics is not just a dam between um, the, in the stream. It's reversing the flow. I mean, yeah. so now you have you have politics dictating culture, at least cultural output, you know, in, in, in terms of what we see, hear and read. Um, right. That is not reflective of where the actual live living culture is. Yeah. 
I want to finish with this one thing. So, you know, there is this idea that the funny idea in the last 24 hours that Joe Rogan, the podcaster with uh, 190 download, 190 million downloads a month, um, should uh, host a, uh, you know, no rules, uh, no holds barred and no time limited debate between uh, Trump and Biden. Uh, I think this is maybe the greatest single idea I've ever heard. Uh, yes, yes. And, 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 and um, It'll never happen, but uh, does I mean, do we really need to hear some CNN reporter ask Trump a question about you know Charlottesville? Wouldn't well, Joe uh, Rogan hours, ask a more interesting four question? Hours too long. Four no hours is it. not too long. Not with Joe Rogan. <laughs> that, that's the whole point. Joe Rogan gets people. They'll listen to him for three and a half hours. Just like, <laughs> yeah. No, it'll never happen. But what could happen is Trump going on Rogan. Alone, that oh, would yeah. actually be smart. That would be amazing. Yeah, you should yeah, do that. I know. And just to watch every single person who gushed over Barack Obama doing between two ferns say that <laughs> cheapening, cheapening the president. Oh, uh, by the way, by the way, so Trump is on ABC tonight on a town uh, the town hall tonight on ABC that Joe Biden refused to. Uh, Joe Biden, they offered a town hall to Joe Biden. He refused it. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know that any of these things really make a difference. Uh, you know, voters aren't going to vote for Trump and not for Biden because Biden refuses to do a town hall with uh, with ABC. But um, uh, the the Biden campaign's calculated decision to keep him as invisible as possible uh, it, it will either prove to be one of the greatest campaign, sort of this weird return to the 19th century in which presidential candidates did not campaign. Um, cause it was seen to be unseemly. Uh, it will either be some brilliant uh, return, uh, and, and, and genius decision or the dumbest thing that anyone has ever done. And I guess we're not going to really know that until election day. It's not just keeping the candidate locked up. It's now there's a revolt among the democratic party over not, not doing retail politics and by, by which I mean, actually knocking on doors and doing a traditional GOTV, that's the sort of thing that really personal contacts, everybody in the industry knows personal contacts work better than anything else. No direct mail is worth a handshake. But the, the Biden campaign is so committed to this notion that they have to socially distance in theatrical ways where they have press conferences where you're on the reporters are a nautical mile apart. Oh, it's oh, just oh, in those weird circles like they're bullseye. Yeah. It's really oh, no, creepy. it's fantastic. So 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 again, on our group chat, you can drink. Uh Christina, I shared a photo. No, you shared a photo of everybody yes. in these circles. Like they drew these six feet circles at the Biden press conference, right? And and Christine said, this is like targeting for a drone strike. <laughs> this is why I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> it was perfect. No, but it was absolutely true. It was like, you know, if, if what you wanted was to pick them off one by one with no collateral damage, this was... <laughs> It was literally you sat in the middle of a bullseye. It was but they're like fantastic. they're ten feet apart. They're outside. They're wearing masks. All of this is theater, and it's really silly because it's it's handcuffing you now. Is there any indication that this is an advantage? It's like they're working off polls from May and saying, "Okay, well, everybody's on board with this," but yeah. everything has changed. Well, my fa- in the last my favorite thing, though, I have to say, and then we should we should go, but is. Um, watching the news and uh you know like you know you have the the segment the tape segment starts on the news you know here in central park blah 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 blah, and then they go to the live shot and it's the correspondent with the mic with the mask on talking 
but no one's anywhere near the correspondent. So the correspondent doesn't have to have the mask on because the correspondent is six feet away and is outside. So it's mask theater now. And it's all, you know, to exemplify it, except sometimes you can't really hear all that well through the mask. Uh, and, you know, could really help to get a little lip there so you can really uh, uh, follow what's going on. Anyway, with that, uh, we will uh, we will uh, say goodbye until tomorrow for Abe, Christine and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.